I'm Susan Moran. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, September 19th, 2023. Coming up, in a word, plastics. That is, the immense problem of plastic pollution and how to tackle it. Our guests are New York Times journalist Susan Shane and Jennifer Congdon of the nonprofit advocacy group Beyond Plastics. You're listening to How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. I'm Susan Moran. If you spend way too much time standing in frustration in front of your kitchen's recycling bin, trying to figure out if the yogurt tub or takeout container that you're holding is really recyclable and being recycled, you're hardly alone. Many companies have been deceptively slapping the so-called chasing arrows recycling symbol on products, even when those products cannot and will not be recycled. Plastic is everywhere, in our clothes, in our bloodstreams, in the stomachs of albatross birds, of sea turtles, and many other marine animals, and in huge floating garbage patches in the oceans. But there has been some recent progress. Earlier this month, for instance, California became the first state in the country to pass a law that will crack down on plastic manufacturers' labeling practices. And several states, including Colorado, have passed so-called extended producer responsibility legislation. Our two guests today will help us understand the environmental and public health impacts of plastic pollution and what's being done about it or should be done about it. Susan Shane is a reporting fellow at the New York Times. She recently wrote an article in the Times about changes afoot that are tackling the problem of widespread deceptive labeling by makers of plastic. She joins us from her home office in Helena, Montana. Susan, welcome to How on Earth. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Great to have you here. And Jennifer Congdon is Deputy Director of Beyond Plastics. That's an environmental advocacy project based at Bennington College in Bennington, Vermont. And she joins us from her home office near Albany, New York. Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks so much for having me, Susan. So I want to focus in this conversation more on solutions, but just to give us some context. I know many people know of these garbage patches in the ocean and how microplastics are getting in everything. But Jennifer Congdon, if you could just briefly characterize, like, how bad is the problem of plastic pollution? And to what degree does plastic packaging, sort of the focus of our show, really, um, is it a culprit? Yeah, so thanks, Susan. In a word, plastic pollution is terrible. And uh, we need to do a lot to fix it. But just to give you a picture, um, there right now between 75 and 199 million tons of plastic is in our oceans and 16 million more tons enter the ocean every year. And, but it's not just an ocean problem. Recent research from the summer actually showed that the concentrations of plastic in freshwater environments are higher than those found in even those ocean garbage patches. That and is that some coming from, um, wastewater? treatment like microplastics um, that, and wastewater yeah that's wastewater and land sources um collecting i think most of the microplastic pollution found in water is actually fibers from clothing mm -hmm. um and so it's it's likely mostly mostly that again like you do your laundry 
and the water comes out and it's full of microplastic pollution. And microplastics can latch on to water molecules, travel through the air um, and in rain. And so even in our most remote mountain regions around the world, there is microplastic rain coming down. It's in our soil, it's really everywhere. And now we know it's in us. And we know that that microplastics contain toxic chemicals that are commonly added to plastics to give them their color, to give them their durability. Um, and those chemicals stay, some of them stay attached to the microplastic particles and those are now getting into us. It's been found in every type of human tissue that they've really researched, um, but probably most troubling in the human placenta and breast milk. So our babies are being born pre-polluted with plastic pollution. And I know there's sort of emerging research in endocrine disrupting chemicals, so many of them found in different plastics and micro, microplastic fibers. What, if you could distill, is known actually about the health impacts? I mean, there's sort of dose-response issue, not just sure. the existence sure. of some molecules. Yeah, and there was a, a big study done in the spring by the Mindoro Monaco Commission that looked at all the current research on plastics effects on human health. Um, and they did find that plastics are responsible for significant harms um, to human health, the economy, and the environment. And a lot of that is those endocrine disrupting chemicals that you mentioned. So those are things that get into our body and mess up all of our hormonal signals. And they can cause um, uh, obesity, diabetes, um, other developmental issues, especially in children. And low doses really matter with endocrine disrupting chemicals. Um, you know, there's cancer causing chemicals in plastics. There, it's it's really a, a toxic mix that we're getting when we put when we get plastics in our bodies. Yeah, and roughly what percent of total plastic waste stream that's out there comes from yeah. product packaging? So about forty percent of plastic production is used to make plastic packaging. Um, and of all the waste generated in the United States, about twelve percent of that. Um, is is plastic. Um, Thirty percent of all waste is packaging in total. So, and some of that is mixed, and they can't separate it out into plastics. So, those are the numbers we're looking at. Which means that if we want to deal with plastic, and actually, plastic packaging is one of the largest contributors that and fabric to the microplastics and mm -hmm. the plastics we're finding in water systems. So, tackling our addiction to single-use plastics is one of the most effective ways that we can go in and solve a big piece of this uh, plastic pollution problem. Yeah, and that helps really set the context here. And Susan Shane, I want to turn to you and the article you wrote recently for the New York Times on, well, on many things, but if you could distill but what's this recent law that was passed in California and how is that aimed at tackling this problem? Yeah, it's California recently passed. It's a truth and labeling law. So basically, um, they're not going to allow the chasing arrows or other types of recyclable labels on products um, unless two criteria are met. And that's 60% of Californians have access to a recycler that accepts and sorts the material. 
and 60% of the state's recyclers have access to a facility that reprocesses it. Because wow. right now, uh, it might surprise people to learn that, you know, people, um, plastic manufacturers and other companies can put that chasing arrows symbol on the products. They can also claim that a product is recyclable and there's not really any data to back that up. Like they can put that label on there. Um, so the California new law is kind of intended to make some data to back up those claims. So that's interesting. I mean, it sounds like it could be super effective. It also sounds like it could be absolutely impossible. I mean, even in benign, undeceptive circumstances, it seems communities like Boulder County probably changes fairly frequently who, not, not who the collector is, but what those end markets are, who's going to be buying that. So to be always having to keep up with the state mandate with your label seems like you'd have to be changing them all the time. So in practice, and then in enforcing that practice, how, how do you see that as not just a pipe dream? Well, I think that in general, I mean, the end markets for plastics, they're not creating it for my reporting. It kind of seems like there are certain plastics that have really strong end markets and certain plastics that they're still trying to build those. And so that's some of the criticism of this law as well, is that especially with one type of plastic, number five, polypropylene, um, critics of the law are saying that, you know, they're still building those end markets and it's not fair to say that it's not recyclable when those end markets are still growing. Um, uh, proponents of the law say that there's not going to be a market for polypropylene, that that doesn't exist, and there's only going to be a market for ones and twos. Um, and could and you just, really just break down a bit? So ones, reporting. sorry, um, ones, ones and twos, could you just say what the key products are of those and then the oh, number for five sure. probably yeah sorry sometimes you know you get so deep yep, into this exactly you remember like at the <laughs> beginning of this i didn't really understand what that was either um so ones and twos bottles and jugs mm-hmm. um those are the types of products that are most readily recyclable and that have the strongest ends market so that's things like your milk jugs your um laundry detergent um things like that like cleaners that are that are not in shrink sleeves so that's really important if you have if there's a plastic shrink sleeve around any of those products which i've started to notice more and more of you have to cut those off or they won't get recycled mm-hmm. and because they're just not recyclable and there's so, <laughs> such a mix of compounds in them I think it's just because something about, I'm not sure, maybe um, maybe Jennifer can explain why the shrink sleeves, I think they mess up the recycling um, processors. Yeah, Jennifer, so, if you could just add a bit there. Sure, yeah. Any plastic film um, can't go through a regular um, material recovery facility, what we lovingly call MRFs in our world, <laughs> um, and because it just gums up the works, basically. Got it. Yeah. Okay. And then number five, the polypropylene are essentially what kind of products? That's like yogurt tubs, cottage cheese containers. Um, I sometimes I think berry containers also I've noticed. Um, so yeah, it seems like those, when I'm looking at my plastic in my house, it seems like those are the most common is one, twos and fives. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how unique is this California law and how other states, including Colorado, particularly on the, on the labeling front right now, are trying to or are already adopting these kind of mandates? I, I believe California is one of the first states to pass a law like this. Oregon is currently um, 
looking at something like this as well. Um, and they are considering including, including polypropylene on their list um, of, of, of materials that municipalities within the state will be required to collect and sort and sell. Um, but I don't, I haven't seen um, laws in other states. I think the, the big thing with California is because it's such a big economy, um, manufacturers aren't going to create a specific label, a specific product for California, as what advocates told me, like it's it's unlikely that they're going to make a separate whole bottle just for California and then make other bottles for, you know, the rest of the states and the rest of the world because California is such an enormous economy. So environmentally, that'd be actually a good thing that that California holds yeah. that much sway just by dint of its population. It's like Texas. Yeah, with I think textbooks. that's what advocates are hoping. Mm hmm. Susan, I'd like to push back on the uh, developing markets argument. So the plastics industry has had really over 50 years to figure out recycling, which became popular in the U.S. Um, in the 1970s. And they haven't done it, mm -hmm. but they decided to put the chasing arrows symbol on their packaging for a reason. And it was to really to, to lie to customers that this was a material that could, in theory, be recycled. But if they were serious about end markets, they would develop the end markets themselves, but they would rather continue to extract and profit off of virgin plastic. Mm -hmm. And they know that their material is not recyclable multiple times, they know that there are too many types of plastics out there for them all to go into the same um, you know, recycling stream. And yet they've done nothing to really change that except lie to the public because they know the public cares. And once the public catches on, which is what's starting to happen now, people are going to be really disgusted with even buying the plastic products. And so if we can if we can show the public that this stuff isn't actually being recycled and they're being lied to, then that's going to be the plastics industry isn't going to be able to use these symbols anymore, which is what matters to consumers. Um, and so this is a in that way, a really important law. And if they are serious about developing end markets and they think that they actually can get this stuff recycled, which I don't believe that they can. Um, then they'll work for it. But they they can't. Yeah, really important point. And I will link on our website later to this 2020 investigation that PBS Frontline and NPR did on the history of deceptive practice that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and Jennifer Congan, I want to ask you, so even if labeling becomes ubiquitously truthful. Do you think that's enough? Basically, do you think consumers are really going to base and do base their purchases on whether that product is recyclable or not? I I think it's a great first step, but I do not think it is enough at all. Um, I think that we need um, laws on the books that hold producers or companies who put packaging on the market responsible for the end of life of that packaging because then they're gonna have some skin in the game. Um, and also I think that we need uh, paired with that environmental standards for packaging. 
Um, they're currently packaging can be, you know, within certain boundaries, anything that a company wants it to be to sell their product. But we live in a time where it is critical that we think about more than just how a, a product is going to sell on the shelf. Um, we are facing a climate crisis. We have this plastic pollution crisis that we we outlined earlier. They need and the the toxics in packaging. People would be appalled to know, you know, all the PFAS, um, heavy metals. And say these are the forever the for, is, so-called forever chemicals, right? Yes, forever chemicals. Mm -hmm. And so we need those taken out of packaging to make it safer for humans. And so really common sense stuff, but the R&D and the marketing people need to talk to each other um, and we need laws on the books to get them, to get companies to change the way they deliver goods to the American people and around the globe. Yeah, thank you. Um, for those who are joining us a little late, you're listening to KGNU's Science Show. I'm host Susan Moran, and I'm talking about how to tackle plastic pollution with my guest Jennifer Congdon. She's deputy director of Beyond Plastics. And with Susan Shane, she's a reporting fellow at the New York Times. So Jennifer Congdon, um, I want to segue to what I think, and you're alluding to now, is a bigger potential solution and necessity, and that is having plastic manufacturers, not just a packaging, but take responsibility for the end of life, for the whole life of their products. And these so-called extended producer responsibility mandates, legislation, seems like they are percolating, including here in Colorado. Jennifer, could you just, in a nutshell, say what, what they are and how they do and would work? Sure. So these uh, programs essentially create um, a system where producers or companies um, that just basically like Kellogg's and uh, Procter and Gamble and you know all of Starbucks, all of the companies that sell us our, our fast consumer goods, um, they would be responsible for um, at least financially and in some systems they actually contract to get the recycling done. but they would be responsible for, getting packaging, managing packaging waste after consumers are done with it. And so they would have a built-in incentive um, to hopefully reduce that waste. But what we found the world over in Europe has had mm -hmm. uh, extended producer responsibility for packaging laws for decades. Um, and there's been no real reduction in packaging. And so we know that we need to pair with that standards to reduce packaging. Um, and the Pew Charitable T Trust in 2020 put out a report um, that called for about a 47% reduction of plastic waste, mostly packaging, through either elimination. Um, you know, I can't tell you how many times people come to me and say, just in this week, they've opened up a package from Amazon or somewhere else just to find mm -hmm. so much wasteful, unnecessary packaging. So just be smarter about what we're using. Um, so eliminate, but also switching to reuse and refill systems where that is possible. You know, we used to have refillable soda bottles, glass bottles that got returned, washed, refilled. We need to go back to some of those systems and expand those. Um, and then, you know, to a lesser extent, switching to other materials. But the company should be responsible for reducing packaging by 50 percent 
um, over you know a period of about 12, uh, 10 years. Um, and then the rest of the material that they put on the market needs to be safer, take the toxics out, and it needs to be recyclable. And that would also mean that we can't have all those toxics in there. So the, that environmental standards for packaging added to they are responsible for achieving recycling rates at the end of the packaging life is going to get them involved in being part of the solution instead of part of the problem. Yeah. And um, I'll ask you, but first, Susan, Shane, given your reporting for The Times and elsewhere, are you seeing much buy-in or by and large pushback from the industry on these extended producer responsibility bills, both California, um, Colorado, I, and elsewhere? I mean, I think with both the truth and living law and the extended producer responsibility law, I don't remember exactly who was on the list of opponents for both of them, but um, I definitely saw plastics producers on different different lists of people who oppose the law. Um, I think one of the arguments that I heard from the industry specifically about the truth and labeling law was that they didn't want like a patchwork of, of laws across the country, you know, for them to have a follow a certain law in California and a different law in other states. Um, that was their argument for against the truth and labeling law, at least. Great. Right. Let's do it nationwide. I love that. And is there, like, are there legislators, policymakers who are um, on that sort of federal front trying to push for it? Uh, um, there is Kunga? the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act, Jennifer. I don't know if you want to talk about that. There is some, yeah, there is definitely some movement at the federal level. Um, I think we're still, um, I say that, obviously, I would love to see a federal law. Um, it takes a little while, usually. Um, to get there. So a few states may have to go first. But um, the Break Free from uh, Plastic Pollution Act has a bunch of these components that we've talked about already, truth and labeling, um, extended producer responsibility, a national bottle bill, because that's actually one of the few ways that um, plastics get captured in a way that allows them to be recycled um, is through bottle bills because it's a it's a one resin type getting um, sorted and it's a cleaner stream. It's not not as contaminated as other sources. So the that bill um, has a lot of really great pieces in it and we definitely support uh, that and do some work on it on the, the national level. And I'm curious, Jennifer Congdon, initially, where do you stand on what some would call a solution to the problem? others would surely call just a contributor to the problem, and that is turning plastic waste into fuel. I mean, there's several facilities in the U.S. that are doing it. Um, mm -hmm. So what's your position on it, and, and at best and at worst, how could it work? Well, I'll just say, you know, we're in the midst of climate week, um, mm -hmm. and the last thing that we need is to turn plastics into more fossil fuel. You know, essentially, that's what plastics are, right? We we the it, oil and gas gets extracted. Um, you add chemicals to it and do some chemistry to the oil and gas. You turn it into plastic. So to take that waste plastic and then run it through a pyrolysis facility um, to create more fuel is really just, it's the same extraction burning process. It just has a brief stopover as a, a plastic package. 
Um, and it's, you know, where tons of chemicals are added to make it durable and colorful. So what and actually, so I just want to interject a bit. So what does Department of Energy say, for instance, in terms of the comparison, just on a emissions, a CO2 emissions perspective? Right. So the, it is doing a CO2 emissions analysis on like, quote unquote, a biofuel mm -hmm. um, is really complex. And there's all sorts of factors that have to go into it. It is even if it is fewer, I actually don't know what DOE says on this today because they changed their position a few times over the past few decades, but it is not an answer to the problem. We have, and it's a distraction from what we really need to do, which is reduce plastic. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we may have a follow-up show on that because I think there's a lot about that. Also the cracker plants turning plastic into more plastic. But for now, we just have time for one quick Question and quick answer. First to you, Susan Shane, if there's one thing you would suggest that people, consumers, listeners can do to, you know, do their part or learn more on the plastic I mean, I, front, what would that yeah. be? Um, I mean, I think manufacturers are going to do what makes them money, you know, besides all these laws. So I think if people care about plastic, I mean, looking for products that are not made of plastic or that are made of recyclable plastic, I think they're going to give the consumers what they want. So if you're looking for things that are highly recyclable, you know, paper, aluminum, glass, um, or, you know, doing refillables like Jennifer was talking mm -hmm. about. Thank you. And, and Jennifer Congdon, one thing that you would suggest or take away. I hope that people will get involved in getting strong legislation passed at the local and state level. Um, and we're happy to work with them. We have programs that help citizens uh, work on these very laws in their local communities. So get involved with us um, and get strong policies passed. We need systemic change here. Thank you so much. That was Jennifer Congdon, Deputy Director of Beyond Plastics, and Susan Shane, a reporting fellow at the New York Times. And I'll link to uh, the websites and articles and different reports. Uh, Jennifer Congdon, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Susan. And Susan Shane, thank you so much. Thank you. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is Beth Bennett. This week's show was produced by me, Susan Moran, and engineered by KGNU News Director, Shannon Young. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and X, formerly Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Susan Moran. <laughs>